Do you want to go down to a 40-hour week without losing revenue? If you're ready to let go of all the extra hours, the stress, the overwhelm, and the clients who hijack your time, consider my signature program, Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind. In it, we'll get your accounting practice under control. We'll fix your pricing problems. I'll show you ways to price so you stop giving away the farm so you bring in more revenue for the work you're already doing. I'll help you disengage the clients who are good people but are holding your business back and slowing you down. I'll help you package up your services and design them so they're easy for your clients to understand and choose from while helping you simplify and standardize what you sell. And we'll focus on making your messaging more interesting and compelling so you attract more of the kinds of clients you want to work with and break out of the hodgepodge of referrals trap. We get your prices up, we get your workload down. We standardize, we simplify, we streamline. And we do this at a pace that feels doable, where you feel confident in every choice you make. Prices up, workload down. Registration is open now. We start Tuesday, May 7th. Come with us. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to find out more. To me, I set up the business to align with what's important to me and my values. I'm very good at ignoring what other people tell me to do because I'm like, because this is a second career for me. So I'm like, I want to do this the right way. I don't want to rush into decisions. So that's been helpful because I can be very selective on who I take. I can also charge a premium because I have very limited seats for a very, very specific niche and provide value that most people cannot. Welcome to Smart Strategy for CPAs, where I help you figure out how to work less and make more. My guest today is Anjali Jarawala, CPA and CFP and founder of Fit Advisors, a financial planning firm serving physicians and business owners virtually across the U.S., Anjali uses her expertise in tax and finance to empower her clients to discover and reach their life goals while building a stable financial future. Anjali also hosts the Money Checkup podcast, where she interviews fresh voices and discusses the many facets of financial well-being. When Anjali started her practice five years ago, baked right into the plan was how to build a highly profitable business while working only 30 hours a week so that she could spend more time with her young daughter. I wanted you to be able to hear exactly what Anjali has figured out in order to work less and make more so that you can see that it's real and do the same thing in your accounting practice. Anjali Jarawala, welcome to the Smart Strategy for CPAs podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. We're going to dig in today about niching and pricing and talk about your journey from starting out as a solo to where you are now. So before we get into the meat of this, why don't you give our listeners just a brief summary of where you are now in your solo practice? Sure. My practice, Fit Advisors, I've had for a little over five years. It's a comprehensive financial planning firm, and I serve 39 households virtually across the United States. So how did you know when it was time to niche into the super specific niche combination on your business journey path? 
So I actually niched pretty early. I launched, when I launched Fit Advisors, I think within six months, I had decided I was going to niche, right? And so the decision as to what to niche in was multifaceted. The main reason I wanted to niche was A, there's a lot of research that shows when you niche, you will see exponential growth in your firm once you reach a certain number of years. And B, B being like a CPA, you know, former big four PWC person where I was super specialized in, in one specific thing I did. Um, and then transitioning to financial planning, that was much more general. It was too hard. It's too hard for me to be a generalist based on my personality. So niching was a way for me to get kind of that specific aspect of the business, which is what I feel like I thrive in. And then, in, and I can also, I was able to like kind of market and target everything based on that niche. So things became much easier, right? And then it's, it's much easier to get really, really good at something because, you know, all your client base is very similar. So my niche right now is physicians who have complex tax needs since my background's in tax as well as small business owners who are probably about five plus years in making revenue in the 1 million plus. So they're kind of, they've seen growth, but they still seem to operate as a startup and they need help making that transition into kind of like, this is a full-fledged successful business that's ready for growth in the next phase of what that business is going to look like. And what was your experience like when you niche? You mentioned that there's a lot of research that shows that your growth becomes exponential at a certain point. What was your experience like with regards to growth once you niched? When I first started niching in the physician space, there's like a handful of physician blogs that are focused on finance and money. So I started by advertising on there, the big one being White Coat Investor, and there were a few others I did as well. At the time, so this was five years ago, there weren't that many people kind of focusing on physicians, right? And then, so when I'm on these sites, there weren't, there's not a ton of advisors to choose from. I was maybe one of two women listed on the site. I was, I think, the only minority woman listed on the site. So I work with a lot of Indian couples because I'm Indian. So they would see me and they'd say, oh, we got to talk to the Indian woman, right? So, and it's not like, it's just, you know, there's, everyone knows that you, you kind of relate to someone where there's shared experiences and backgrounds. So yeah. that helped me a lot. That kind of got me through my first three years where I was seeing uh, pretty sizable growth quicker than my, you know, colleagues and peers who are starting their practices around the same time. And then unfortunately, what happened was I was on Kitsies and other podcasts, and I mentioned this. So then all of those sites got flooded, which is okay, right? Um, they got flooded. So those no longer became a good source of new clients for me. So that's when three years in, I actually developed a full-blown marketing campaign for my business and my brand. And that's what's gotten me to where I am today, but, uh, two years after that point. So there's a lot in there that I want to pull on. But one of the things is, sounds like you were on the Kitsies podcast, or we know that you were on the Kitsies podcast, but because of that, other people, like you basically created some of your own competition. Correct. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and there's another woman who also specializes in physicians who stay on the same side as well. She's really sweet. And she was on the podcast, I think, a few months before me. So it was her saying the same thing. Then it was me. And so then all of a sudden it went from maybe like 10 to 15 advisors to I think there's like over 100 now on that site. So a part of me was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But uh, <laughs> I, at that point, I actually I decided to super niche. So I think what I do is super niche um, because I'm not just general physicians. I'm very specific on the physicians I work with. Um, so I realized that those types of kind of advertising wasn't working for me because it couldn't express like specifically what I was doing and catering to a very, very specific group 
private physicians, which is why at that point I made the decision to create my own marketing channels versus relying on someone else's. Because when I created, I can control, you know, the messaging, what is being said and clearly, you know, communicate my value. And that's been really, really helpful in terms of my growth and where I am today. I do want to come back to your marketing and your own channels and your own lead gen, because that's really important. I want to stick with a super niche for a little bit more because I, you are super niche and I don't know where the distinction is between super niche and hyper niche, but sure. <laughs> I think, I think you might be into hyper niche um, because you niche. So I like to say you can niche by what you do. You can niche by who you do it for, but you've niched not just as a CFP for physicians, but a CPA CFP combination for physicians and small business owners, a million plus, but you're also a female and minority. So that attracts people who look at you and go, okay, she's going to get me. Right. So talk to me a little bit more about specifically the CPA CFP combo and where the balance is for you in your practice. I would say I'm probably 75% financial planning at this point, which also includes investment management. I, I kind of do the one-stop shop for everything. And then I would say 25% is more the accounting tax um, because as part of my service, I will do all the tax planning. If I work with business owners, I'm, I work as kind of their fractional CFO, right? Where I'm kind of looking at their financials, helping them understand that, helping them do cash flow, et cetera. So there is a component of it um, that I use my CPA hat, right? And because my background was at PwC, that's a space I'm very comfortable with. So when I was kind of figuring out, when I decided to like hyper niche, you know, or super niche, maybe two and a half, three years in, um, I really sat down and looked at like, what is my skill set and my background and what can I do and who can I serve? So I went from kind of a really large funnel of like, I'm doing physicians and I've made the funnel much, much smaller. But now the people who come through that funnel are right on point, right? Like I don't have very many prospect calls now where I'm like, no, I don't think I'm the right fit, right? Everyone is, people are seeking me out. Most of my referrals now are word of mouth, right? Or uh, referrals from other clients or centers of influence. So I don't, I don't get the same volume I used to, but I don't need the same volume because I'm just getting like the, the right people. And because there's very few CPA, CFPs, female minorities, who have like a very heavy public accounting tax background. Um, it allows me to set myself up as someone who's like, I, and when, and this happens where I'm having a prospect call and that someone might say, Oh, like, I, I feel like I want to work with you, but the price point might be a little too much for me at this point. Do you have anyone else? And I was like, I literally have no one else who has the same background as and experience as me that can help you. Right. And, and it's not because, I'm, I mean, you know, I'm not like the, the unicorn out there, but there is very few people in this space and who have niched to serve this specific group, right? So that was kind of my journey on figuring it out. And it's kind of trial and error. Like I, I would bring on clients. I would try someone a little newer, like, okay, let's get a practice owner and let me see what I can do. Let me get this like small business owner who does like digital marketing. Let me see what they can do, like what I can help with. So it's, it's kind of trial and error for me to see who who I can provide the value to, right? Who I can provide the, the most value where I'm also enjoying what I'm doing because the business side is still more interesting to me than the personal side. That's why it was kind of trial and error, kind of figuring out who's the right fit that then I got to a point where I could say like, this is exactly the right type of person I can serve. And then once that person finds me, right, it's, it's very easy communication to say like, 
here it is. And they're like, I already know you. I feel like I know you. Like, where, where do I sign up? Right. So it makes like even the, the whole sales process isn't a sales process anymore. Right. It's just like, you know, the conversion rate gets much higher at that point because I clearly know what I can communicate and what my value is. And the client, if they're the right fit, understands that because usually I'm the person they've been looking for for a while. And that's what they, that's what they tell me. <laughs> so yeah, I finally found you Right, right. when you're super niche and you're super clear about exactly who you want. It just makes your marketing so much easier. It makes the sales conversation. It's not even a sales conversation anymore because they come to you already having made the decision that you're the one they need to work with. And it has to be like authentic too, right? Like I've talked to people who they're like, I really want to like work with physicians. And so I'm like, okay, tell me why, right? Like my husband's a physician, right? Most of our friends and family are physicians. Like I, so I'm not a physician, but I'm very much, I understand the lingo. I understand their, their struggles, what concerns they have, et cetera, because it's just like in my niche and in my circle of my family and friends anyways. And so usually if someone's coming from kind of like left wing, I said, okay, but there's work you need to do because that person needs to trust you. So what are you going to do to build that trust? Right. You can't just like come up with a random niche without doing the work around it. So it's always ideal to have a niche in which like you already have a place of familiarity you can come to with it. And then from there, you can kind of see if you, if super niching makes sense based on, you know, all the other things I just mentioned. Has the growth in your business because of your niche been exponential? It has. I So, so what I would say is that for a, a, a financial advisor who started his or her own firm to be five years in, I'm, a, I'm ahead of most people I know in terms of my revenue. And I, I'm, and the thing with me though, is I'm very intentional about the decisions I make in my business, right? So what normally happens with a financial planning firm is that, you know, people just kind of grow, 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 and then they hire staff and then that affects profitability, right? Because the more pe- people and personnel you add on, that's just what happens. So I made the intentional decision to stay small. So I'm like, I'm just, I'm going to stay small. I have a cap on the number of clients I will take. I have one other person. She works with me about 30 to 35 hours a week. And I was like, I do not want to hire anyone else, right? I want to keep, I, I keep a pretty lean, very profitable business intentionally. And I work about 30 to 35 hours a week. So I have time to spend with my daughter who's four, right? Right. Because to me, I set up the business to align with what's important to me and my values. I'm very good at ignoring what other people tell me to do because I'm like, I, I, because this is a second career for me. So I'm like, I want to do this the right way. I don't want to rush into decisions. So that's been helpful because I can be very selective on who I take. And I can be, I can also charge a premium because I have very limited seats for a very, very specific niche and provide value that most people cannot, right? So kind of working through the numbers, I, that's how I kind of determine what my fee schedule is. Cause I'm like, I need, I want to make like X amount of revenue per year in my business because I don't, I don't believe in running a business if it doesn't provide for my family, right? Like anyone, you know, would, would want to do. Um, so it was like, what's that price point I need to charge for my clients. Right. And I have a different, some variation in terms of, I have some that are just like straight W2 physicians, right. They're a little less work than kind of my 1099s or my practice owners or my small business owners. So kind of figuring out that fee structure and then being very diligent about sticking to that. Right. You know, everything kind of comes down to like, structuring this business around what works for me for now, right? Like things may change, but that's kind of how I've come to where I am. So I've had, I've had good growth, but I wasn't looking to like 
go from like, you know, 20 to 100 clients, right? I'm literally going to stop at 45. I'm at 39. I have four proposals out that I think will all say yes. Yeah. So I may be done for the foreseeable future right yeah and that and that's how I did it because that's what works for me and so and then there's a kind of a scarcity mindset there too where I'm like when I tell people I was like I literally have four more slots right yep. and I'm like and I'm not saying that to pressure you I'm just telling you that like I it's first come first serve so if I only I only have four slots mm-hmm. and I not guarantee when I will take someone else again it'll probably be when someone drops off and I also have very low turnovers so you know it just kind of it it helps like with the whole story that people are like okay like she's she's keeping a small practice so that she can spend enough time with each of our clients that's why I've structured it that way because I I want to have that connection and I want to be able to make sure that I can focus the time and energy I need to, I can't do that with a hundred clients, yeah, no. right? I can do it with about 40 to 45 and that's it. That's my number. Some like other advisors can handle a practice of a hundred. I cannot because I'm so super niche. So my clients take more time, I think, than if I just had like people who are a little more straightforward. So I'm just been very intentional in terms of how I do things. I also, ever since I started Fit, I've been looking, revisiting my fees every six months to make sure that what I'm charging uh, compensates me for my time and the value I provide. So I think that's another mistake I've seen is that people don't reassess their fees enough and then they might fill their base with people and realize that maybe the price point is too low and it's so much harder to raise prices on current clients than to just get people in yes, or at the right price. paying what they need to be paying. Right. So that was another thing. I wish I, I wish I did it sooner, but I think, I think I did it appropriately based on where I was at in my firm. And it took a, it takes a few years to kind of have that confidence to be able to say like, this is what I do. Here's who I serve. This is my price point, right? So once I got to that point, that was, that was, that was a good place for me to be in terms of me and my business. So much in there to love. So there's the pricing piece that I want to come back to and the confidence piece, because I think when you have the confidence to be able to say, look, this, this is who I work with. This is who I serve. Here's the value. This is what people get. This is why they come to me. I've got five slots left. Let me know what you want to decide. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much a different, like you come from a different place inside of you, right? Yeah. But I want to come back to one more question about the niche, just because this is something that I've heard come up in conversation. And then we'll come back to the pricing and the, um, the marketing. And that is around the physician space. And you've mentioned this, you know, 1099 versus W2 and that there's consolidation in the physician space. They get bought up by a hospital, whatever. And then you take your client who was maybe you were doing fractional CFO for them. And now they've just become a W-2 client. So I'm wondering if you can sort of speak to that from that experience, what you see happening there. I haven't seen as much where they were, you know, maybe practice owner 1099 and they've gone to W-2 because of hospital acquisition yet. Um, I've seen the other way where they started off as W-2 and then they switched to 1099. So usually when that happens, I'll adjust the fee because if I'm working with a 1099, right, like I'm helping them figure out legal entity structure and then getting their, like making sure that the CPA is getting their tax ID for them and setting up their bank account and keeping everything clean from the IRS perspective. And then we do S Corp note, right? There's a lot of like additional steps in planning and then cash flow for a 1099 um, physician is different than cash flow for a W2. Like anyone who's 1099 or business owner, cash flow is much more, is, is more work because it's, it tends to be uneven. We have to put money aside for taxes, right? We have to figure out all of these other things. So usually at that transition point, I tend to um, put in like, because I charge on a flat retainer, like there's an additional component that gets added onto that just because of the complexity that's involved. So, I mean, I haven't seen 
a ton on the consolidation aspect of it yet. I think it will happen, right? I mean, I am about five years in, so it's still pretty early. Um, but I think that there's going to be more and more of that we're going to see because that just seems to be the trend in the healthcare industry right now. Um, I don't take very many like W-2 dual income households. And the reason why, and, and I'll tell people like my prospects that I talk to who fall in that bucket is that like my price point is pretty high if you're just two W-2 physicians, right? I have some people who still have signed on because they just really want to work with me. But I'll tell them, I'll be like, you can get like just as good service with someone I'll recommend to you who's in the same space and they'll be cheaper than me, right? I'm like, I just charge a premium because this is everything I provide, right? And, you know, I'm limited in terms of my capacity. So, you know, it's, it's I tend to focus on like, I get a lot of the 1099 physicians because I'm one of the few that focus on that. Um, practice owners, I have a handful of those as well. I also have, you know, a lot of the partners and medical groups, things like that. So that's kind of on the physician side where I've um, focused. And now this other niche, which I'll call hyper niche that I've seemed to have developed unintentionally is uh, physicians who are looking to build a passive income real estate portfolio. And that has just happened because I've had so many clients interested in doing that. So that I just taught myself everything about that space. So that's become another niche where I seem to get a lot of physicians who are looking to kind of gain financial independence and they want to leverage real estate or some sort of other passive income to be able to not be full-time in clinical medicine anymore. So it's, it's kind of, it's interesting how things evolve. Some of it is like what was in my control. Other things has just naturally have happened. And because I'm on certain physician blog sites in which my articles and my blog posts will pop up. It's just, uh, I've, I've gotten some recognition in, in that space as well. That is interesting that it, the piece about, you know, follow what the need is in your business. Right. So let's come back to charging a premium because of what you provide. So I think there are a lot of listeners who would like to be charging a premium. So tell us, bring out the value of what you provide, especially in your client's eyes, because it's really easy for CPAs to get caught up in the deliverables um, versus the value of, you know, the what little I know of what I've heard you talk about, you know, being able to see your entire financial picture in one place. So why don't you put it in your words for listeners the value you provide in charging a premium. Yeah, um, I don't do deliverables, just FYI. I don't think it's needed. Uh, and my coach actually said this perfectly. She wait, said, wait, wait, you don't think it's needed at all or you don't think it's needed by you? I don't think it's needed to the extent we think it's needed to be honest. You mean CPAs think it's needed or business owners think it's needed? I think us as like CPAs, CFPs, business owners, we think we need a lot of deliverables. And I, I did, I used to do a lot of deliverables and I realized like, it's just not needed to the extent we think it's needed. Right. That's, that's what I'll say about deliverables. <laughs> I'm also virtual. So I'm not like sending paper, right. If I, if I, if there's too many things that I need to help clients visualize, I'll set up a deliverable and I try to do more visuals than too many numbers and stuff um, because the value is the conversations that we have. Right. Uh -huh, and it's yeah. what I tell my clients is the value I provide is that I'm your key person that will bring all the moving pieces of your financial life together and put it in a format that is easy for you to understand. And then I will educate you and give you my thoughts so that you, and if there are a couple you too can make better financial decisions for yourself. Because me telling someone what to do is not going to empower them to do it, right? So instead, I give them the tool, the education, the support 
so that they can make those decisions for themselves. So I have clients who love that, right? And I have a lot of clients who kind of were the do-it-yourself type who was like, can you, and they they come to me because they're like, can you, we just want you to better educate us so we feel like we're making the right decisions. And I'm like, great. And then I have others who are like, that's great, Anjali, just tell me which one to pick, right? And I was like, okay, like, you know, I like to tell you, and they were like, we love that you tell us all the, the, like, the three choices that you think would work, but they're like, just tell us which one we trust you, right? So a lot of what we do is I do modular planning. So I don't do a big plan on the front end because I like, I just think people find that way too overwhelming. It's too overwhelming for me to just put it together. Right. So I'm like, let's, what I do is I, I break up the process into manageable components. Um, and so within like the first one or two months, we'll address like what was most pressing for the client, which is the reason I came in for the first place. And then I'll map out the next year for them and say like, these are the things we're going to work on and focus on. Right. And I'm like, and the reason I do it that way is because the plan is supposed to be dynamic because our life is dynamic. So I don't want, nothing should be so rigid that we can't make tweaks and adjustments to someone achieving their financial goals because of underlying things that come up, right? Which is, that's very, that's the CFP hat because it's very different from the CPA hat I wear where CPA like tax law, like we understand the tax law and then these are the numbers that go on the return and there's a right and a wrong way to do that. In planning, it's very different because it's more of an art than a science. There's no one path to get to, a, to get the client to where they need to be. There's various paths we can take. So the goal is to figure out what those paths are. And then the, the, the barriers that will come up because barriers will always come up. How do we best address it? Right. And so I also do a lot of work around goals and values because like being in a children of an, of, you know, immigrant parents, um, there's a lot of like, there's this thing called a money script, which is like what we tell us about money that's shaped by our childhood, our culture, mm-hmm. various things. And that impedes our ability to make better financial decisions for ourselves. It, it does that for me. Like I, I used to be extremely cheap, extremely frugal. I constantly worried that there was no money. My mm-hmm. husband's the ex- exact opposite, right? He's, and he comes from the same background. Right? Like, <laughs> and he, his dad passed away very young. So he was raised by a single mom. So I was, so like, he should have more stress than me and he doesn't, right? So, you know, we come together and we have total polar opposite views on money. I'm the advisor who manages it. And so I'm constantly like, there's not enough money. There's not enough money. And he's like, he's like, are you sure about that? So we actually then made the decision to hire a financial advisor for ourselves because there's value in having someone on the outside help facilitate conversation, right? So there's, there's so many, it's not just like numbers, right? There's like, there's also like getting people to understand what's really important because we're we're in such a consumption society here and we we do a lot of comparisons. So we end up like saying like, well, that person is doing this and that person is buying that. We should be doing that. And I was like, no, like your money should be working for you in terms of what's important for you. So like ignore all that. Let's just focus on what what it is you to want in need short term, long term. And then we're going to align your money to to help you reach those goals, right? The money is important, but money is just a means to to provide for what's really important to you, right? Mm-hmm. So like the the framework and the mindset around all of that is very different. Yeah. And a lot of times we, I think like what I used to do is I used to get caught up in like having too many deliverables, running too many numbers. And honestly, like I've learned that like I'm going to still do all of that stuff, but the client doesn't need all of that detail, right? Yeah. What they need is they want a conversation. They want a space to express concerns, stresses, whatever they have around money. Because sometimes that's the only time they have in their busy lives to really look at their financial picture. And then they want someone to have a conversation with them to say, okay, like here's, here's where things are at. 
here are the things you guys need to do. Like, how do we do that? Right. So it's, it's much more conversation. Um, every, any deliverable I have, I've run a lot of technology. So a lot of my projections, my planning is all done, um, dynamically through the tools I use. Right. And so then, and then we use technology to help clients keep track of their to-do list, their tasks, et cetera. I use Trello for that. So we have like systems and processes. So the client is still getting all the information they need, but they're not overwhelmed with all of the details that we as CPAs like, <laughs> but the client doesn't necessarily need all of that, right? That's what I've noticed in terms of working with my client base. I had like, I have two engineers that were early clients <laughs> that came on. They like to see all the details, right? Actually, they like to see all the details on the very front end because they're doing their uh, like yeah, analytical. They're checking your like, math. And <laughs> sure, they're checking my math. And then afterwards, they're just like, yeah, that's good. Like, right? So it's just, so it, you know, it's also like you, you kind of adjust based on the personality type of the clients that you're working with. And I love that you bring in the conversation, the sort of emotional piece in there, because it's, we, people have so few places where they can talk about money in any way that's not weird, right? Like you can't, right among your peers at cocktail parties, dinner parties, but you can't just, right. You know, it's still very taboo, it is which taboo is, and you know, it's, it's strange. It's not for me, but I, this is what I do, but it's just strange. I feel like if we, if it wasn't so taboo, I think maybe more people would have a healthier relationship around money, including myself, right? I, I've, I've done a lot of work to improve, but there's always improvement that's needed there. <laughs> so let's talk about what a premium actually is, because before we started recording, you talked about how your prices have gone up since the last time I heard you on a podcast. So, um, so let's talk about what is a premium now for you? Let's see. Let me... So. Um, uh, pricing for financial planning engagement is, is really difficult. It's like what CFPs complain about the most. So I have a very complicated spreadsheet I've put together in terms of how I price out client, like prospects and clients. We love complicated spreadsheets. <laughs> you can check the box. <laughs> it'll populate the price. So the way, the way my fee works is that for base planning, which is like just two W2 employees, for a couple, it would be 12500 It only covers a million of assets. Anything above a million, I tack on an additional 0.5% on top of that. I don't, I don't charge the AUM quarterly. I just reassess the asset value at the end of the year and then make the adjustment for the following year. Um, if you are you know, 1099, a practice owner, et cetera, there's another additional charge of anywhere from 2,500 to 5,000 to 10,000, depending on how much work I'm going to do on the business side that gets added on to the 12,500. And then if you're looking to build a real estate investment portfolio, then it's another 2,500 on top of that. So my, my, I kind of now am at a like 15 K minimum a year for anyone who wants to come on board. Um, and I'll have some that are higher I'll have some that are like around there. Maybe I took one that was 12,500 just because they're, they're like, we really want to work with you. And she's an Indian woman. I have it's like, I'm like, okay, I'll work with you guys. It's fine. Like, um, and so they're at 12,500. Right. So that's, I think the, I think the that more average price point is probably like 5,000 for an individual, 7,500 for a couple, maybe up to 10,000. So when I was on Kitsy's podcast about two years ago, my minimum was at 10. I'm now at 15, right? Um, but I'm sending out proposals that are 30 to 35,000 a year. And these are people that don't have like tons of assets, right? Because we always are in an asset under management. That's like kind of the old model of doing planning. But I'm like, no, I'm charging on like complexity and my time and what the value is that I'm going to provide, right? Because it's, it's, uh, if someone's coming to me and I'm like, well, 
I'm here to pull all the pieces of your financial life together, all of your personal stuff, and you want to plan for your children's college education, and then you also have this business on the side, and you want to build a real estate investment portfolio. How are you going to do that by yourself, right? Like, who is that person who can bring all of those together, right? Like, and there's very few people. So when they talk to me, and you know, when I do my prospect calls, it's it, I let them talk for the first, I do 30 minute calls, the first 15 to 20 minutes, just them. I'm like, tell me what's going on, right? What's, what's prompting you to seek out an advisor now? So I let them just talk. And so I'm, I'm taking copious notes. I'm really good at taking notes because I, I can, so, you know, I have all the things that like their stressors, their concerns, what they want to work on. And then I usually will address the main ones that they brought up to me. Right. And I try to keep those calls limited to what they're telling me because there's a lot of other stuff we're going to do, but I don't need to burden them with that because that's not why they're talking to me. Right. So they're, they're talking to me about these like three or four things that are really important. That's the three or four things that I'm going to address with them and tell them like, this is how we would work together. Right. And the other thing is like, I'll like, it's very easy for me to say, Oh, you're a business owner. You want to build a passive real estate investment portfolio. And there's all this stuff on the personal side that you want to make sure that you guys are set up for retirement. Your kids are set up like, yeah, that's like, you know, that's like, you know, like most of my client base is like that. Right. So there's kind of assurances on there and that, I know what they're going through because I'm working with a bunch of clients that are in the same situation. And then that's a lot of like information that I can just leverage. Like I had a client tell me, she's like, I like working with you because I know you work with other female business owners and you will tell me things, not that specific client situation, but you have this experience and this expertise you can draw on because of the people you serve that you can help me with. Right. So there's that, that's the power of the niche, right. Is that you get so good at serving a specific group that you can leverage that experience so well that to you, to me, it becomes like easy. Like, like none of this is complicated anymore because I've just done it so many times. But for that other person, they're like, wow, like can't believe I found someone who can do all of these things, right? And so because of that, that's why I I, I know my price point's higher than the average advisor because I like a lot of the prospects tell me that, but it's because I've super niche that I can kind of be at those higher minimums and be selective on who I take. And, you know, and, and I have to say no to a lot of people because of that. And it's not that they don't want to work with me. It's just, it doesn't make sense for them to spend that much money, right? Like I'll tell them. I'll, so I, I turn away more people than I'll, actually let like do a consultation with because I know that they won't be the right fit, but I'll always like refer them to other advisors who I think would be a good fit. One of the things I think is so interesting under in there is that the assets under management pricing model, the thing that CFPs gripe the most about seems to me like such a bizarre way to price something as if the value is only in the percentage. And the value, I mean, to me as some, as a regular person who owns a business and has investments and so on, the value is in have like, for me, it would be having one person that I could talk to who understands both sides of the coin and will help me implement all the things without making mistakes in between. Because when was the last time I get my CFP and my financial advisor to actually have a conversation? Right. Never. Right. Right. So it has nothing to do with the assets that are under management. No. It has everything to do with implementing all the things I want to implement. And the thing is, I, you know, I work with younger people. So the AUM schedule works well for like pre-retirees and retirees who are like, you know, ultra high net worth and they're sitting with five to 10 million or whatever that number is. And it's like, okay, it's easy. Like here's asset, but I'm working with like my average client age is 40. Right? I, I have, so if there's assets, they're in retirement accounts or it's like in the business, the value, right? So like the AUM doesn't really work. I have a component to it just because if I have someone who has like 5 million, there's different things that I would do there. So I, I, I do have that as a piece of the 
fee, but most of the fee is usually based on this base plus the complexity components that I add onto it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think it's just more like the old school way where investment management was the focus with light planning. And now the shift is comprehensive planning where investment is just a piece of it. Right. So the AUM model just doesn't work with comprehensive, especially when you're working with, you know, younger clients. Yeah. And I think the piece to call out here is that for me and perhaps CPAs looking in on the financial industry, they can look at the AUM model and go, that makes no sense, but it's harder for them to see the hourly billing at 165 or 350 an hour makes no sense. Right. So right. what I'm hoping for the listener is that they can go, oh, right. Like mine makes no sense either. I just, I never thought about it before. <laughs> right. And you could always like, like CPAs are good about like tracking their hours, right? Once I left PwC, I'm like, I'm not tracking my hours anymore. Yes, like, no more. Yeah. <laughs> like, like they know, like if they know ballpark, how much things are going to take, right. They can back into their hourly rate. Like I just did that exercise. Sure, if they want to. Yeah. So it's just, you have to just kind of figure out what works for the clients you're serving because that's the other thing i work with business owners so i'm like well i'm gonna charge the fee paid out of cash flow we'll bill it to your business and the cp and then you get a tax deduction for it, right because we're doing so much work on the business side that the cpa is very comfortable taking that deduction um so it's just you have to figure out what works for the the clients you're serving right if you're serving like you know, a certain group and then you may not be able to charge like 15,000 for that, right? Like my average client household income is probably like half a million dollars. So to for them to pay like 15 or 20,000 for planning, it's not, that it's not going to put them in like financial jeopardy, right? But yeah. if it's someone who's making significantly less, I can't serve them because it just won't work. And, you know, but there's a lot of great advisors out there who can, right? So it's, you have to also be comfortable saying no, right? And just structuring things the way that makes sense for you. And letting go of having to help and trying to help everybody, right? Because then you can't have the business that you want. Yeah, it's hard, but there's enough other people doing work. Like there's enough advisors, enough CPAs, like you can, you know, that's where having your network of colleagues to refer clients out to. Like if I say no to someone, I will always send them at least one referral, right? Like talk to this person, right? Here's the phone number of this person. They might be able to help you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So let's go over to advertising and building your own brand and being in charge of your own lead gen because I think a lot of people will say they get business by referral, but you don't really have control over the number, the quantity, or the quality of the referral. Right. So talk to us about making that transition from business growth by referral to getting on top of your own lead generation. I was forced into it because I got slow. And I was still in growth phase and my regular channels were too flooded. So I just wasn't getting the volume I was getting before. And I, you know, you know, I live in, I live in LA, right? It's a really expensive year. So I needed to bring a certain level of income. And I just, I wasn't bringing that, you know, about two and a half, three years in. And so when my channels dried up, I had, I had to force myself to do something, right? So um, I'm not a marketing person. I, I hate it. I like just don't get it, right? But it was something that, you know, if you're a business owner, you have to do it. So I had a good friend of mine. She was like my marketing consultant who helped me rebrand. So I redid my website. That's the other thing is once you decide to niche, you really have to make sure that your website and everything that's consumer facing is really aligned with what your niche is. So we, I did a whole rebrand in terms of like the website is completely, the website that I have now is very different from the website I had when I started fit. And that's because I, I had much more clarity on 
my value, who I'm going to serve. So the website was designed for that. Um, I then also launched a podcast. That was the platform that I thought would work best for me and my personality is to do the the podcast. Um, And then I also have a blog. So um, and every week, either a, a podcast episode or a blog episode comes out. So in any given month, I have two podcast episodes, two blog episodes come out. And it's and it's not necessarily like I'm killing the SEO game because that game is really difficult to do. But all it does is it provides someone who hears about me or searches me or someone refers them over to me some way to find out more about me before they call me, right? So most of the people who sign up for a consultation have heard my podcast a lot. I get a lot from my podcast. They've read maybe some of my blog posts, right? I write stuff and I talk about stuff that's, you know, related to money, but I also talk about personal stuff, like how I'm handling being a business owner and a mom during COVID, right? Like, so I try to, you know, write about like just my personal story so people get to know me better. And that has helped significantly. It it hasn't replaced the volume that I used to get when I was on like white coat and stuff before it was so flooded, but it's gotten me to a point where everyone who comes through now are like, right on point, right? And I don't have to sell because they've already listened to me, right? They've heard me on a podcast, right? I get a lot, like I have an episode that's like tax planning for 1099 independent contractors. I I have a lot of people who've like just listened to that one episode and they're like, I have to talk to you because I don't know how to do this. And you're like the only person who's explained the 1099 in a way that I'm like, oh my gosh, I finally understand what I need to do, but it's too hard for me. I need someone to help me do this, right? So it's just, I think it's, you have to put content out there that resonates with the niche you're serving. And that also shows you and your personality um, because then you're going to, it's much easier to attract those people, right? And the other thing though, is that this is also what happens, I think when you niche is that you start to get a lot more referrals. So I get a lot, like most of my prospects now are referrals from clients or just like centers of influence. There's a few physician bloggers who blog about who have like a finance blog who I I just have gotten to know really well. I don't do any more advertising on physician blog sites. So if someone asks me, I say, I, I don't advertise. If you'd like to collaborate in another way, just let me know. I'm happy to do that. So they just have gotten to know me well and they understand what I do. So they, if they, if someone in their network asks for an advisor recommendation, I might be one or maybe there's one other person that they refer out to, right? So these are big physician communities. I'm on one where like I get referred out on like a physician mom blog community and that's a big, big community. And I'm one of the few advisors that get, you know, recommended. And it's by the owner of the, the woman who started it as well as there's a lot of clients now that are on that. So they now throw my name into the ring every time someone asks, right? So it's, it's, it's interesting to see like the organic growth that's happened, but the organic growth has happened because I have content there, right. So I was using like a full blown marketing team. I was spending a lot of money on that. And I just made the decision to stop using them as of the end of this month. And the reason why is because I realized that I'm not as focused on growing my RIA practice anymore because I'm almost hitting capacity that I get enough coming through. I'm going to still keep up the blog and the, the podcast and stuff, but I can do that in a much cheaper capacity than what I've been using with the marketing team because I no longer am as focused on being on social media and all of that stuff because it's not true. It's just not my personality type. I'm, I'm a little bit of a private person. I don't, I'm like, I, someone like, you know, we were trying to do a whole Instagram campaign and I'm like, I hate this so yeah. much, right? I'm like, I absolutely <laughs> totally. hate this. Like, you know, I just don't want to do it. It's just not me. Yeah. Like I like podcasts because I can have like, 
you know, real conversations with people and provide helpful information. The podcast was more of a passion project to help educate because who I can serve is so limited. So I'm like, let me push out some education and knowledge, right? So that's where I made the decision. Like, I'm like, I'm going to do the marketing stuff not because I can now. I'm just going to do the marketing stuff I enjoy doing. And I'm not going to worry about doing all the other stuff, even though it seems like every like everyone tells you you have to do all the other stuff, yeah, right? You're supposed to, yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I think you have to maybe start broad and see what works, what doesn't, mm-hmm. right? And then get to a point where you're like, you can make the decision now to like turn off one of those faucets, right? Because it's, you know, I have advisors I know who do like, Facebook lives and they're very like, you know, they like to do a lot of video. And I'm like, no, because like half the time I don't want to wear makeup and I don't want to do my hair and I don't care. Right. Like I get as easy. Like you can see me, but like no one else can see what I look like right now because I'm going to go work out after this. Right. So there's like, it's just like, you know, finding the fit. And the nice part is there's like so many different channels now that you can do that. It makes it like makes it much easier to figure out what's the right one and then kind of try it and see what happens. And it's not like I have tons of people listening to my podcast episode. I was talking to my, uh, my, another friend of mine who he started a podcast and he has like, I think five times as many downloads as I do. And I was like, man, maybe I'm doing something wrong. And he was like, no, he's like, you're just super niche. So you're, he's like, it's not indicative that it's not valuable. He's like, it's just, you're so niche that like, there's only a specific group of people who are going to listen to you. And that's okay because that's what you want. And I was like, oh, thank you. Like that was very helpful to know, right? Like that's why I had to stop like full-blown marketing because it was too stressful to look at the numbers because those numbers don't really matter if like things are working for you and your business, that's what I would say. Right, 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 right. That it, you need to know what kind of money you need to bring into your own business and your own business is going to be different from everybody else's out there. So the comparison game can actually do you a disservice because it does what you, what you just mentioned, which is stress you out and make you nervous right. <laughs> and make you do things that you're uncomfortable doing. And then you don't show up as yourself and you, as well as you could. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what my friend had said on Instagram. She's like, you, it's not you writing those posts, right? She's like, I can tell it's not you. And I I was like, oh, I was like, no, then I, then I don't want to do this if it's not authentic to me. She's like, no, it just sounds too bubbly. And I know you're not that bubbly. <laughs> but it's like, that's what happens when you kind of outsource and you have someone else kind of doing that, right? So, you know, just figuring out where to spend money and what makes the most sense based on the marketing channels you're choosing to pursue. So you sort of straddle, not quite 50-50, but you straddle the CPA-CFP sort of space. If you could change anything at all about either one of those spaces to make it how you think it ought to be, what would that be? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I would say that um, in the CPA world, the technology is still very old school. So it's it's still like, I, I can't run tax projections without the CPA's help because I don't, I'm not going to get BNA and put in all that information, right? Just to do a quick projection. And uh, I usually will build out Excel spreadsheets and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to have the CPA do it. So like technology, I feel like is a little bit of a, I wish the technology was better on that end, but. Which is so interesting because they're quite paranoid that they're going to get swallowed up by the technology. And I'm like, oh my God. I mean, yeah, maybe, but the technology is also so clunky in a lot of ways. Anyways, keep going. Yeah. And, and that's a fun, that's an interesting point because on the financial advisor side with robo advisors and all of that, like advisors for a while were worried that technology would replace an advisor. And I was like, you can't replace like human connection, right? So, yeah, and, and wisdom, more importantly. Yeah, like technology is a tool and it's useful. On the planning side, my complaint is that I don't have one solution that fits everything I need to do, right? So I have like six systems I have to use to get everything to where I need. And I wish it was just one, um, but I'm not going to, I'm too small to spend time or money to build something out like that, right? Like it, 
I figured out how to make it work. So, um, and then I had made the decision when I launched that I wasn't going to do tax prep services in my firm. Oh. Um, yeah. And the reason why is because I, I came from that world, right? So I understand the time it takes to do that work. And I know like what education I needed and like, you know, keeping up to date with all the tax laws and everything, that's a full-time job. So I felt like I would do a disservice if I was doing the tax prep because I'm not going to be as up to date on everything like the CPA is. So the way I structured it was like, find a handful of CPAs that are comfortable working with me, right? To the point where you one of the CPAs I work with, we do a call every week to go through all of our clients the other CPA I work with, we talk quarterly. Um, they, I get all the draft returns before it goes to the client, right? Like everything comes to me first. I review it because they're, and, and that's what I want. I want someone who like I'm in their process so that everything that goes to the client is very clean. They know I've looked at it and I'm, I'm much closer to the data. So there's just things that I know that the client forgot to give the CPA, right? Like, oh, like, no, that person bought a Tesla last year, make sure they get the credit or two years ago before the credit phased out, right? Like, I just know those things. So when I review a return, I always will find something. And, then, and it's not because the, the CPA did something incorrectly. It's just because I'm closer to the info. So I think, and I'm very much, because I was at PwC, you know, I'm very much like a, I love multiple levels of review on things, right? It, it makes a difference. So like, why not have that in the process for our clients? So if they're working with a solo practitioner CPA, that's okay because if it comes to me, it goes to them, the CPA looks at it, like there's three of us that look at it at one point. So like by the time that return is finalized, it's pretty clean, right? We've captured every deduction we possibly can. And then I, because I have the tax background, like I'm much better equipped to do tax planning than someone who doesn't, right? So that's the that's the value add is like I can... I can do and identify those tax planning opportunities throughout the year. So then it's just a conversation with the CPA. Like we can almost, it's almost like I don't even need the client involved, right? I just come up with like the strategy. I talk to the CPA. They're like, that sounds good. Just think about this, this, this. I'm like, perfect. And then we just sit down with the client and say like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's the tax savings. And then they're like, perfect, right? So it's, it's also kind of like being the person who can manage all the other service providers. So the client is not spending so much time going through it. And it's so much easier for a CPA to talk to another CPA versus the CPA having to talk to a person who has no background in, yes. right? Like any CPA listening knows that, right? So it's, it's so much like a conversation that would take the CPA an hour to have with the clients, like him and I, or her and I can do in 10 minutes, right? It's just, right. You, we just, so that's where like, I think people start to understand that when they work with someone like me, like, okay, she can speak the lingo. She knows how to do this. And same with the business side, right? Like, I'm very comfortable reviewing the PL, looking at their balance sheet, reviewing tax returns. So I can already give them like an assessment on like, you know, I, I won't know specifically, right? I can tell them like, your books look wrong to me. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know specifically <laughs> why, because I'm not a QBO expert, but like these, this looks off, right? Like this looks off. So let's get like someone who's QuickBooks in let's, and then they'll say, they're like, yeah, this is wrong. Like, this is like, we need to do this, this, and this. So it's just helping to identify things and just having someone else in the mix who kind of can can kind of work in all of those different avenues, right? And bring everything together, right? So like it's, you have to kind of look at your skill set and back. That's how I did it. I looked at what's my skill set background? Where am I comfortable with? Who am I comfortable? Who do I, you know, click with, resonate with? Then build, then focus the niche around that. So for other people, it might be, they just happen to fall into niches. I know people who that's happened and they've been very successful. So just kind of, it just depends, right? It, but you have to, you have to make it work for you. I just, 
like I just did a lot of work on my end to figure out like what is it that I'm good at um, having confidence in that because you have to have the confidence in order to charge the pricing and because you want you don't want any doubt in that conversation with the client right mm-hmm. if there's doubt then they're not gonna then they'll be like well I hear doubts or are you overcharging me like am I gonna pay you right yeah, like, doubt it, smells like fear to a dog yeah so and and that took a while like I had fear in the beginning but like once once it's clear the fear goes away right because you're just very I'm very comfortable in what I do and the value I provide and who I serve and if someone doesn't recognize that, that's okay. Like, you know, there's no long-term commitment with me. That's what I tell prospects. I said, you'll know in the first three months whether you like me and I'm the right fit. And after that, so I'm like, if you're on the fence, commit to three months, right? I charge the, the retainers choice monthly. You, you'll be out this much money at the end of the day. But, um, you know, that's a good way to try it out, right? You're not, you're not tied to me for a year, but you'll know. So let me ask you this, and maybe this will be our last question. Because you started at PwC and in the sort of public accounting space and then kind of CFP after, and now you're more CFP sort of looking back at CPAs, sort of like, you know, you go to the moon, you look back at Earth, it's a different perspective. What would you say to CPAs who are kind of not caught, but, you know, still kind of enveloped in their own perspective that you can see from a distance now? that might be useful to them? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll speak to public like big four because that's my background. So I was at PwC for a little over six years. So I was a second year manager when I left. About three years in when I was like, you know, an experienced senior, I knew I wasn't going to stay. Like partner wasn't like that wasn't what I was aspiring to anymore. And I was always like, oh my gosh, I need to leave. I need to leave. And um, in retrospect, I'm so glad I stayed as long as I did because the, the most amount that I've learned was as a manager. The manager transition for anyone who's been at, been at a big board, that is the hardest. Man, being manager is really, really hard, especially when you're transitioning from senior to manager. I learned so many skills as a manager that I use in my business. I'm glad I stayed as long as I did because it was like those last like two years of my career there that have that transitioned me to such a different professional that I think that attributed to my sex success of starting my own business. Don't brush aside any experience that you're getting because experience is valuable, especially for me, this is a second career. I think people who do financial planning as a second career, even if it's something completely unrelated, I've noticed that they're just a lot better at doing it. And it's and, and financial planning is something you can learn. It's not It's not so, so difficult, right? But there's so many other aspects of it that's hard to learn that if you have like life experience, you have prior experience, it's very easy to bring that into this business that makes you much more successful at that business, right? Like you cannot replace experience, right? So like, I like go get the experience, right? You get whether it's like in an accounting firm, whether it's a planning firm, just get some years under your belt. Because you're also like what you want when you're like 23, 24, 25 is different than what you want in your 30s is different from what you want in your 40s. So like where you are in your life stage will also dictate kind of like what you're going to do in the firm you're going to create, right? Like if I started my firm when I was in my 20s, it would be very different. My firm right now is structured because I'm a mom, right? And um, I want, and I value my free time. So I structure my business to be able to provide that. And for me to, we're only having one child. So to be able to have this time with my daughter during these years, right? I don't need to spend 60 hours a week working like on my firm because that's not the kind of firm I want to start. Don't be scared to take risks in your career, especially when you're younger. Yeah. If I were doing it again at this age, it would I would be 
much more hesitant because I tend to be risk averse anyways, because it is a lot of work, right? It takes, it takes about three years before you get to like, oh, okay, I'm finally making some money. It took me until last year to feel like I was providing enough for my household where I stopped worrying about money, right? So there's sacrifices that we've made, but it's been worth it because um, I really like being my own boss. Yeah. <laughs> it was something I kind of knew I was always going to do, right? Yes. Like I hated 80 hour work weeks and stuff. I, I think it was important that I stayed as long as I did because of the skill sets that I had learned, especially on the tail end of my career there. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. Well, we may have a few listeners who are just as happy not to have a boss and be their own boss. Anjali Jarawala, thank you so much for coming on the Smart Strategies for CPAs podcast. Thank you for having me. I hope your listeners enjoy it. Thank you so much, Anjali, for coming on the podcast. What stood out to me most in this episode was the level of intentionality with which Anjali designed and built her practice to align with her values, and that by choosing to stay small, she could cap the number of clients she takes, be selective, charge a premium for limited seats for a specific service, and provide value that most people cannot. And all of that was intentional. She set out to do it that way, and it works. If you would love to have a high value, low volume practice, and you're not sure if your niche is niche enough, go back and listen to episode 91, Is Your Accounting Niche Niche Enough? And if you want to know more about shifting to a business model based on high value, check out episode 86, Secrets of Shifting to VCFO Services with Jody Grunden, co-founder and CEO of Summit CPA Group. Figuring out your niche so that you can increase the value you add and command higher rates is one of the hardest parts of shifting your business from traditional accountant to highly paid advisor. It's a process I move almost every single one of my clients through, even the ones who thought they were sufficiently niched. If you know your business's growth is being held back because you can't figure out your niche, I can help you find it. Put 15 minutes on my calendar, Just go to shethinksbigcoaching.com and click on the big fat red schedule time with me button. You'd be surprised at how much ground we can cover in that time. So I hope you'll take me up on the offer. All right, that's it from me. See you next week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk. In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Registration is open now, but it won't be for long. Go to GeraldineCarter.com now to enroll today.